Krebarama. It's me. I'm out the front. <laughs> what, what an incredible front. <laughs> I uh, will be out there in a second. Girl. See you in a sec. Bye. Right, so while we wait for Annabelle Crab, I've got a little bit of time to fill, so I think we all know what that means. Show tunes. Good morning, good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. She's not coming yet, so I better keep going. When the band came out, oh, here she comes, here she comes. Okay, no mentioning of the show tunes. Oh, she's wearing a hat. Uh, here she comes. Don't mention the show tunes. Good morning, Crab. Hi. That's a very nice hat that you're wearing. Uh, yeah. Look, the thing is, as soon as somebody offers me a lift anywhere, even if it's just to a bakery, I immediately bring all the stuff that I need to return to the ABC, including wardrobe equipment and this preposterous hat. Just to paint the picture for people, she's wearing an enormous hat that's making it quite difficult for her to get into the car. Yeah. And a bag of contraptions and another bag of stuff. Well, you it's... know, I don't get a ride every day at sales, so... Uh, now, half of the Clive Palmer wardrobe, actually, which now has to go back to the uh, land of borrowed dresses. Oh, okay. Um, now, I should make it clear to people, we're in the car today because somebody sent me a tweet um, at Scott underscore Warren that said, if your pursuit of best sweets with Annabelle Crab hasn't taken you to sweet bellum in Petersham, it must. Best Portuguese tarts. So that is where we're going while we're having our chat this morning. That so, is so good. I mean, I, that is responsiveness, right? Although I must say, can I just... Uh, you have uh, to hold this first. Oh, you're letting me hold it again this I, week. I can't do Your big old and... sweetheart. Um, I think we should make it very clear that while we'll take... <sighs> If I can't is hold the any... mic, I've at least got to boss you around. Is that okay? Do you want me to put the hat back on? <laughs> anyway, this is not the right way to slip sweet bell. I'm just FYI. <laughs> oh, it isn't. okay. Oh, well, we've got two. You're going the wrong so, way. Oh, it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. Just okay. Um, anyway, uh, I think we should make it clear that we're happy to go to sensible places that people suggest, but, but not to, you know, let's do the next one in a strip club <laughs> or at... Carl <laughs> Sanderland's house or something. There'll be none of that. Carl Sanderland's house could be all right. Uh, no, it just actually wouldn't be all right in any way, shape or form. I mean, send me a postcard, but I'm not coming with you. Um, now, people actually, speaking of people communicating with us on Twitter, I'm really taking us a bad way, aren't I? But That's anyway, okay. I'm this is like a scenic tour of my neighbourhood. scenic tour of your neighbourhood. Um, people have been really great. Um, so thanks, everyone, for engaging with us on social media about some of the stuff that we have been talking about in recent weeks. Like, the, the idea of mispronunciations, you know, when you um, only ever do reading and so you're never quite sure, you know what the big words mean but you don't know how to pronounce them, just produced an absolute flush of perlers from the, uh, from the Twitter sphere about things that they routinely misspelled and mispronounced. No, mispronounced. There was at Nathan Dory who for years thought Segway was Segu, which is, I guess, why the manufacturers of that preposterous American kind of weird... Um, vehicle um spelt it s-e-g-w-a-y oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Okay, right yeah um at duke luke m has a friend has a friend in <laughs> a friend who thinks picturesque is pronounced picture skew <laughs> that's a good one yeah. i mean the thing i must say that i noticed when people sent us these things was how they all actually made 
eminent sense because if yeah. you did just pronounce them as red, that picture picturesque would sound like picture skew. What do you do though when your friend has this sort of thing and they've said it a few times? Because I've you know I know somebody who says and has said too many times now for it ever to be really corrected without being really awkward. Um, a slight well, let's face it, a radical misunderstanding of the term penultimate. Like you'll say, oh, that was amazing. That was just the penultimate. <laughs> As in, like, <laughs> that was the that, that was the, that was the nearly last. Oh, no. <laughs> oh crikey. Um, Can't I really. Think, I think you've got to let it slide. It's like when somebody gets your name wrong and you politely ignore and then they just keep doing it like, you know, hey, it's great to see you, Annabella. And then you just think, I'll let that one go. And then they just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And then it's like, what do I do now? How did someone mess up your name? Uh, Lisa, because Lee Sales sounds, oh. you know, if you run it together, it can sound like Lisa. Jeez, and you're not paying much attention if you come up with Lisa, though, really, are you? So pick up your game, people. Um, the other thing that people um, sent in was <laughs> some excellent new variations on cruising for a bruising. Um, at JMMJ, I, you know, I'm going to get your name wrong, whoever you are, um, came up with frolicking for a bollocking, which That's is pretty good. Fun. And uh, Paula Hanash was listening to a, her po a podcast on her morning jog, which is uh, very good, and came up with jogging for a flogging. Oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, there was like dozens of people came up with things that they sent us on that. So it was very fun. So thank you very much, everyone. We got a lot of good laughs. We were um, Now, for some reason, we were talking earlier this week, um, you and me, sales about um, insider accounts. How do we get onto that? Like, you know, where you read an account from the inside of something. And we started talking about what our favourite insider books are. You know when you've got like a journo or whatever who de decides to get embedded in some sort of scene or industry or something and I'm obsessed with these kind of books. We're talking about Breakfast Television or something, uh, were we? I think it started off with Breakfast Television because there was a book that came out of the United States called Top of the Morning and then also um, a book recently by Adam Boland, the former Sunrise EP. Um, I think it probably speaks volumes for Adam Boland that I didn't end up reading that because I thought it, he sounds so nice, like he hasn't stuck the knife into anyone and, oh, did I just go past the place? I don't know. Anyway, I keep driving. Um, uh, and I didn't want to read it because I'm so horrible that I only like to read those sorts of things <laughs> if they're absolutely sticking the boot in and completely savage. Well, they have to be, they really have to make you wince, don't they? Yeah. And, um, I mean, one of my favourite ones ever, it's, I mean, it's not particularly famous, I don't think, but it's a book called um, The Devil's Candy, which is an insider account of the making of the film of The Bonfire of the Vanities. Ah, and, well, it's, it's written by this woman called Julie Salomon, who's a film writer, and she... Um, early on in the project, and when Brian De Palma, you know, took on this making of the Bonfire of the Vanities, you know, it was a hugely successful book in the States. And so the, the movie was always going to be this sort of incredible big deal. And then they hired Brian, Brian De Palma to direct it. Well, yeah, and, um, and she cut a deal with De Palma to get access to the entire production process so that she would have the definitive account of the making of what was going to be, you know, this sort of blockbuster of the year. And of course what happened instead was that it turned into this turkey, like every every stage of that we're just executing a completely berserko 88 point turn here. Um, <laughs> sorry Petersham. <laughs> Currently target, targeting <laughs> idiot driving. Carry on. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is probably, no, it's not illegal because you're not holding the thing. I am. <laughs> no. <laughs> I hope you don't have an accident. That's no. That's terrible. Well, I mean, like the chick doing the bonfire of the vanities. Great podcasting, yeah. though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, go on. Yeah. Anyway, so um, it's, 
it's a debacle like Melanie Griffiths has a meltdown and there's all these problems with her hair and Tom Hanks has disasters and they can't find a place to shoot and money gets thrown out the window and De Palma's having all these relationship breakdowns and it's fantastic like it's oh, such a gripping awesome. read. I must read that over Christmas. But the great thing about it is even when the film becomes a turkey De Palma sticks to his agreement with this woman to let her write the whole account like he doesn't vary the terms of their agreement which is a heroic thing to do because I mean as a result the book is fantastic and yeah. I assume was kind of a smash but the, it was built on the failure of the actual project. The um, uh, That is the best sort of insider account I reckon where they give access and then it turns into a turkey and there's nothing they can do or they basically just allow the person to keep doing. My I reckon all-time favourite probably insider account was from, it's actually a, a, a documentary called The Staircase. It's like a six-part. Have you seen yeah. it? No, I, um, I haven't, but I've heard all about it from a friend. Uh, about, I've been meaning to watch it for about six years. Absolute cracker. Um, and it's basically that... Uh, a guy, a documentary maker, gets access to the defence team in a murder trial and the case is that a woman has been found at the bottom of a staircase dead and her husband is charged with her murder. Uh, and so he has full access to the defence team. And the defence case just unravels in the most extraordinary manner. And the guy, who, the husband, is just... He's one of those characters, he's a great character, because you just change your mind from week to week, like, oh, he totally did it, and then you think, but he just, it just doesn't ring true on other levels, and there's his secret life that's exposed, I mean, you've got to love a secret secret life exposure sure, as well, God. so, yeah, that's, that's cracker. That's awesome. I, um, I'm reminded of this book written by Joe McGuinness called um, uh, Fatal Vision, which is, he was a very young journalist and he's actually the author of one of my other favourite insider accounts, which I'll talk about in a second. But he um, was embedded in the defence campaign of this um, uh, accused um, Green Beret um, guy who was accused of killing his family. Um, and he was brought on as a writer to write the definitive account of the successful defence, you know, and it was a huge case in America at the time. This guy called, was called Jeffrey MacDonald and um, his family were all found dead in his house and he was there covered in blood and he said that hippies broke in and killed his family. Yeah. Um, anyway, at the end of the trial, the writer decided that he was actually guilty but pretended, like went on pretending that, you know, he was part of the team and everything. And the guy who was he was the um, defendant was convicted of the murder but didn't realize until the book actually came out that his friend the writer had actually decided that he was guilty so the whole book turned out to be this denunciation oh. and that book is the source um, or the subject matter of the book The Journalist and the Murderer by, right. by Janet Malcolm, which right. is this treatise on the propensity of journalists to lie to their subjects. It's a really interesting subject. But um, where I first came to read Joe McGuinness was um, when he was a baby journalist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was 21 years old and he got in a cab with a friend of his he hadn't seen for ages who happened to be working on um, the 1968 presidential campaign for Humphrey. Um, this was a Humphrey-Nixon um, campaign. And so th this journo, Joe McGuinness, decided, oh, that sounds interesting, what ad campaigns... An ad agency is getting involved in a political campaign. This was unheard of at the time. So he kept 
took the cab around to this ad agency and asked if he could sit in on all the meetings. And Humphrey's ad agency said, no, you can't. So then he went around to Nixon's and they said, yeah, sure. Wow. And so they let this kid with a clipboard in to every single session that they did. And I don't think Nixon's people really realised what was going on. And he went on to write this book, The Selling of the President, which is this absolutely gripping account of the Nixon campaign, which he was allowed to write because basically no one really knew what he, who he was or what he was doing. Nixon was furious when it oh, came out. Imagine. It was a bestseller and it hasn't been out of print <laughs> since. It's, the most, it's a great account of the beginning of television advertising in politics. The, this um, sort of subset of this genre, which is inside presidential campaigns, um, is a really interesting one. There's a really great book. It's very, very fat, like a thousand pages, um, which was done on the 1988 presidential campaign called What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. And he had, um, you know, fly on the wall access basically to numerous of the candidates. And he had a very narrow question that he was trying to answer, which was, it, it seems to be an extraordinary vanity for someone to think, not only could I be the president of the United States, like that's within my grasp to do that, that I'm just some, you know, schlub from wherever and I could, could actually do that, but also that I should do that. <laughs> I'm the right person to be in charge of the free world. So it's like a psychological study where he's trying to work out, um, you know, what what drives these type of people to think that they could and should, you know, do that job. It's really, really interesting. Wow, I've never seen that one. That sounds great. It's I, on I, my shelf in my office, grab it. Okay. Well, look, yeah, it's 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 kind of great when those books take a, a narrower focus and really explore one aspect, in this case, you know, of the kind of um, quasi-psychotic um, personality required of your average <laughs> US presidential candidate. Exactly. <laughs> the other um, sort of insight, I mean, look, I love all insider ones, Hollywood ones, you know, whatever, but rock band ones are also fantastic. <laughs> so one of my favourites of recent times was, uh, which I was thinking about this week because the Rolling Stones were touring, is Keith Richards' My Life, which, I mean, it just ticks all the boxes. As I said before, like Adam Boland's obviously too nice to, to just completely dump on everyone. Um, <laughs> Keith Richards' Apparently not so much. <laughs> so it's basically, he remains likeable throughout it and it's told extraordinarily well. And it's also telling you about something that you have no idea what it's like, yeah, what it is yeah. to be in this incredibly, amazingly famous rock band. So he talks about, one of the great chapters is talking about what does it feel like to play to a stadium of 100,000 people? And he describes in great detail what that sounds like when you're the person yeah. at the front of it. It was really interesting. But also the... Um, the insights into the relationship with Mick, Mick Jagger. I mean, obviously, I don't know Mick Jagger, but but a lot of the stuff that he said about Mick Jagger, it just had that sort of ring of truth. Like, there's this bit where he talks about um, everyone, because, you know, Keith Richards, all manner of drug taking and addictions and stuff, and he says, you know, frankly, everyone um, has their addiction. I chose drugs. Mick chose flattery. Oh, that's pretty great. Yeah, and it was like, I just, when I read it, I think I actually audibly went, oh. Well, that's the thing about, I think what we're getting to with, you know, what makes a great insider account is that the author just has to be prepared to blow themselves up and everyone around them. And that's, you know, it's such a destructive thing. And it's, I mean, what does it say about us as readers that we are, we're really drawn to the ones where everybody dies in the end? <laughs> like, it's this terrible tragedy, but it is so compelling. And, um, I mean, one of the... I've read this fantastic and, again, not, I think, all that widely circulated book um, about the Bush years by one of his junior speechwriters, a guy called Matt Latimer. And his book is called Speechless, right? And it, it opens with the most extraordinary account 
of what was happening inside the Bush White House when the global financial crisis was happening, in the full lame duck phase of, of Bush's presidency. And, I mean, Latimer is this sort of, you know, young but absolutely rusted on Republican, like, you know, he worked for Rumsfeld, he thought that McCain was a total sellout, you know, he was a full kind of conservative um, Republican. And yet the picture that he paints of Bush at this time is just terrifying and so funny like there's a point where he just you know wanders into his senior speechwriter's office and the guy's just wearing mickey mouse ears for absolutely no reason and then there's bush wandering around in his socks saying you know looking at the script of this um rescue package that he was about to announce and just saying well i don't i don't even understand this why am i announcing it you know it gives you this weird glimpse into um image making and speech writing and you know and a very alarming element of US politics. Do you know what I reckon one of the hardest things would be being United States President would be the thought that every single conversation you had with someone, even like past the ketchup, is going to land in somebody's memoir. You can never, right. you, you know, I'm just going to go to the toilet. You know, someone yeah. is writing down in their diary, oh, Obama went off to the toilet and he took seven minutes. Like, you know, it's just... Oh. It's like, and, and every grain of time that someone gets from you becomes a tradable asset too yeah. because it's like well I was talking to Obama the other day and uh, he urgently needed to go to the toilet what about that you know <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean and that's why I just look at that thing that happened in the 2012 campaign you know when Mitt Romney was doing that donor event oh, and yeah. he did that whole thing about well 47% of Americans aren't going to vote for me because they're just needy whiners who you know rely on the state for everything and you know I'm going to finish that all up and then you know surprisingly some minimum wage waiter has run a uh, quick iPhone over that and you think I don't know you kind of wonder you, you do not wonder now why politicians are so guarded and cautious when they're definitely on camera oh, because yeah. half the time when they're not on camera they're still, kind still on of, camera yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. this um, talk of American politics reminds me of the West Wing and our discussion last week about Aaron Sorkin <laughs> and uh, you know the writer of the West Wing which I, I wasn't a huge fan of the West Wing and I can assuredly tell you that I was not a fan of the newsroom have you watched that <laughs> I did you see I was obsessively into the West Wing right and and yet staffers that I knew, because I watched it, when, you know, I began watching it when I was in Canberra. And in fact, I used to watch it with a bunch of staffers um, uh, and, uh, from a mix of political backgrounds. And there was, you know, I thought it was fabulous because the writing's funny and, you know, you, you love to think that political officers are like that. But the staffer response to it was always a bit like, oh, as if it's anything like that. Like there's a bit of frustration. I'd be like, oh, poo, 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 poo. But then watching the newsroom, I understood exactly how they felt. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I must say Sorkin's general style, um, like the really, the fast talking, wisecracking, I find actually a little... It's not to my liking for whatever strange reason, so I don't I don't like the vibe of his stuff. Having said that, I absolutely loved the social network. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, well, you'd like it more if it was in Danish, I bet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I need subtitles. Um, <laughs> for them. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, um, but the newsroom, it was. Firstly, I hate my entertainment with any sort of overt bashing me over the head political message. I can't stand it. Like Avatar. You can get that at work. <laughs> I can get that at work and I do. I just want to be entertained in my private life. So Avatar was another film that I just thought, just shoot me now. Um, 
so the newsroom, the sort of, you know, hey, we just need to tell the truth. It just so happens that the truth has a really, really left bent to it. Um, so I found that really annoying. But that's what, like, the thing about Sorkin, and this happens in the West Wing and in the newsroom, and I'm sure this, this is because, like, the West Wing's audience is a Democratic audience. I mean, yeah. in many ways, I think that Obama's biggest problem in office is that he isn't the greatest Democratic president that people can conjure to their minds because Jed Bartlett already did that. Like, he's the guy, you know? I reckon Jed Bartlett is Obama's greatest enemy. Anyway, um, but I'm digressing. Um, in the West Wing and in the uh, newsroom, Republicans always turn out to actually be Democrats. So, like, yes. Alan Alder's character, um, whose name I can't remember, but it'll come to me as soon as we've stopped this conversation, um, He's the Republican candidate in the final series of The West Wing. And he's like pro-life. He's kind of, you know, a pacifist. He's kind of, he's for gun control. I mean, you know, I'm saying, hello, that's not a Republican. Well, that's like the newsreader. Yeah, in The West Wing, he's meant to be a Republican. And it's just like, on what planet is this guy a Republican? I think there's like a nod that he's, he goes on a hunting trip or something. And so you're meant to go, oh, Republican. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he inhales. <laughs> but the thing even vastly more annoying than that is I find the women in that show really really irritating like I can't stand this type of female character which is somebody in a really high-powered super accomplished job but that slips on banana peels all the time you know that type of female character constantly yeah. bashing into poles or sending you know emails to everyone in the company like that sort of klutzy the female klutz who happens to be a Pulitzer Prize winning correspondent and the executive producer of a right. New York current affairs show I'm sorry that's not that's not really So what true. did you think of Veep? Did you like Veep? I absolutely loved Veep. Well, there you go. That's, that's entirely hypocritical. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, Veep, I thought, was just genius. But um, one more point on the newsroom as well. The woman who's the EP, Mackenzie, uh, and you know, Jeff Daniels is the anchor. Oh, she is so annoying. She's so annoying. Mackenzie just is... I just It's the neediness that bugs oh, me. Oh, God. And also... As somebody who anchors a TV show, if my producer sat out the back running the smart-ass commentary in my earpiece that she does non-stop in Jeff Daniels' earpiece, I would just come out and punch them in the face. I would deck them in the control room. It is so annoying. And I look, I know that it's not meant to be a faithful representation of life in a newsroom, but it can't help but niggle. Okay, stop it now. Stop it now. I'm getting quite worked up. You are. You're really cross. Um, now... The other thing I've been listening to this week, and I've basically, you know, sort of gone on about it so much that you've been compelled into having a listen to, is a podcast called Startup, uh, which is the other one, Serial we've discussed, which is the most popular podcast in the world now, um, and Startup is becoming very popular. It's about a guy, if you've ever listened to um, This American Life or Planet Money, the guy who's doing it, Alex Bloomberg, um, was involved in both of those projects. And so now he is trying to do a business, a startup, uh, to try to make money out of podcasts. Like, I'm, I'm not sold it's going to work as a business, but anyway, nonetheless, he's giving it a red hot go. And what he's doing is recording the story of him trying to get this startup off the ground. And it is really compelling. He records business meetings where he tries to get finance and he records conversations with his wife where he runs the potential company name buyer and she just laughs at his face. <laughs> it's actually good. Did you like the first bit that you heard? Well, I got straight onto it and listened to the first episode after your ringing endorsement. And it's, 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 I think it's actually where we started talking about insider accounts, isn't it? Not on reflection, yeah, it might be, because it, yeah. it kind of it gives you this sort of actual fleshy experience of what it's like to start up a business. And you know, he makes the point um, that 
you know, a lot of journalists don't get that because, you know, we've worked for organisations or, you know, I mean, now more and more journalists are undertaking their own, you know, business enterprises. But he decides to just, you know, run this tape recorder, well, probably something a bit more. <laughs> see, <laughs> see, mine is never going to work, right? Because yeah, like, people I'm want to ours is slightly crappy <laughs> quality. It's because we're doing it on a reel-to-reel. -reel. I actually am uh, inscribing this with my own stylus on a sort of papyrus roll. Uh, okay, all right, point taken. Um, so, and every kind of awkward bit about forming a business or kind of success or failure, he actually kind of relentlessly records. So there's this kind of, in the first episode there's this moment where he makes a pitch to this big money guy who's behind you know twitter and he invented he um invested in not instagram but you know a couple of other really successful really startups ones, yeah. and so it's you know getting five minutes of this guy's time is quite extraordinary and he's quite confident about his own business but at the moment that he's required to pitch he just goes to water and it's just so agonizing <laughs> listening to him. he's sort of like well the thing is um well you know and this big money guy is sort of going mm-hmm and then something completely crazy happens well um Oh man, I, like I'm almost sweating now just at the recollection of it. Um, the guy who he's pitching to uh, says, listens to him for about an hour and then says, here's what your pitch is. And then he just gives this blindingly fantastic one minute awesome pitch and you think, wow, so he's actually got what the business is and he's given the best possible take on it. So he does that and the guy, Alex Bloomberg, is quite relieved and like, oh, fantastic. Anyway, and then he goes and now here's what's wrong with that and then he just demolishes the best. <laughs> he just like does a complete 180 and then demolishes the pitch that he just gave and why he wouldn't invest in it. Oh, God. And there's coming up in episode four, he records a conversation between himself and a guy who um, he wants to be his business partner and they have this awkward discussion about equity and who's going to get what percentage and their views as to who should get what are vastly, when they put their numbers out, my God, they're so far off. And what they each do is go away and then record the conversation they have with their wives when they get so home. Good. Oh, it's really good radio, but it's quite uncomfortable listening because it's just so, so awkward. But um, but I am enjoying it nonetheless. It's such a, I mean, it's such an interesting new dimension that you can get with podcasting, I think, where you, um, you can quite economically capture all this stuff. And... It's um it just brings this whole new dimension to um, I guess our experience um, of businesses is always in the rearview mirror, isn't it? You know, so and so started their company and now are worth billions or whatever. Like the people you hear about that are these shooting stars, you don't really get a lot of that kind of early awkwardness, and you don't get a sense of just how robust you've got to be at that point to actually survive this existential horror that is asking somebody for money that you don't know and you're not really quite sure about your own, you know, whether you're sure about what you're doing and then having to be bulletproof oh. in, some, in front of somebody who's an expert. I'd be Bloody terrible hell. at it. I can't even promo the um, podcast. Which brings me to <laughs> make sure you check out our website, www.chat10.com. Looks3.com. See, I still can't do yeah, it. That was brilliant. Now, who was it on Twitter that said this, like, because you know how we were having this, you were trying very lamely to produce, to remember the name of the website last oh. week, and I said something like, yeah, wow, you're, 
You're an ad sensation. Lee Sales, toothpaste, it's so tubey. I work with it. You'll get it. <laughs> and something and very kindly has made an ad on Twitter, like of me with a tube of toothpaste with your quote. It's <laughs> made us both laugh a lot. It's great. Uh, we're doing great work for the uh, for the dental health of Australians. Absolutely. Which, um, can I seize that segue seg there? Segue, yes. Dental health? Yes. Just because I've yes. been reading, um, I was reading this week, um, this article called Poor Teeth on um, Eon magazine and it's by a writer called Sarah Smarsh and she talks about um, coming from a really kind of poor area um, in the States and talking about how the kind of trademark of that area is that everybody's got really terrible teeth and she talks about how that is a massive sort of um, delineating factor, dental health um, in the States where you've got this sort of broadening um, inequality between the um, working class and the and the um, sort of disappearing middle class. Um, and it reminded me of this book that I read quite recently, which is really great, called Hand to Mouth by a woman called Lisa Tirado. And she's written this book about what it's, I mean, it sounds, there's no way of saying this without sounding, you know, ridiculously patronising, but it's a book about what it's like to be poor in America. She's a great writer and she has, I mean, she struggles financially and has um, written this really excoriating account of what it's like not only to um, to be incredibly poor but also to read the commentary about you know poor people and um, assumptions that are made particularly politically right. about you know people who just you know don't have the compassion for their children to, to look after them properly or, or don't work hard enough you know mm. don't work job you know don't get a job and so on. Um, it reminds me of um Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ehrenreich where um, she basically does for a year various minimum wage jobs and it sort of puts uh, paid to this idea that if you're poor it's because you don't work hard yeah. enough. She at certain points is doing two jobs. She's killing herself. She's working yeah. really hard yeah. and she can barely only just keep treading water the entire time. Yeah and in fact Ehrenreich's book um, is referenced constantly in this book Hand to Mouth. The title is Hand to Mouth because she's got such terrible teeth that she spent her entire um, uh, teenage and early 20s years literally with her hand over her mouth because she was so ashamed of her teeth and you know it's um, I don't know like there's a lot of great reading to do about um, the growing sort of inequality between rich and poor in the in, in America and um, my colleague when I was living in the US my colleague Mark Simpkin did a story where in I think it was rural Virginia um, they had this thing once a year where there would be dentists would volunteer and have like a weekend where you could go. They had tents set up in a big paddock where you could go and actually get your teeth looked at or get teeth pulled or whatever. And it was heartbreaking. Like the, the queues were just thousands of people came to get someone to look at their teeth and most of them just asked for all of their teeth to be pulled. Like it was just devastating. Do you have anything more cheerful that you've been reading this week? Uh, yeah, we'll have to, have to really seg you out of that one, won't we? Um, I was going to say just um, in the context of the Rolling Stones being here, if anyone hasn't seen the Martin Scorsese documentary Shine a Light, it's really, really worth having a look. I'm not even a very big Rolling Stones fan and it was so enjoyable. And Despite having read all the books and seen all the films. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's sort of weird, isn't it? Um, the, firstly, as a piece of filmmaking it's just extraordinary every shot looks like a really well lit and 
beautifully composed photograph and because it's a live concert you think how is he not getting a single camera in shot for the entire time and how come everything looks so well lit I, I do not know how he did it um, and there's a great scene as well where Hillary Clinton's coming to the concert and she's bringing her mum and there's this fevered discussion about who has status the Rolling Stones or Hillary Clinton They're like who has to go to who does she come to their dressing room or do they go to her so anyway that's that's great um, and the only other thing I'd throw into the mix is I've read there was a book that came out a few years ago that was a huge at the time called One Day by David Nichols. Um, it's the story of Dexter and Emma, this sort of, you know, couple that hook up in uni and then they go their separate ways and then they get back together, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it was a huge, huge hit at the time. He has brought out the next book after that, which is called Us, uh, which was just really di disappointing. It's about a marriage breakdown, but it doesn't quite hold together. So I don't, you know, oh, steer the clear. Old number two book. Yeah, steer clear. So, yeah. yeah. What about you? Anything oh, else? To... Well, look, just to uh, throw the switch to vaudeville, I did... Um, disproportionately enjoy this week the interview that um, Jaden and Willow Smith gave oh, on, on the occasion. So these are the children of Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. So <laughs> they're just the most delightfully bonkers pair of lunatics. And um, <laughs> they they both claim to have been reading, you know, Jung and <laughs> Kant and... <laughs> It was. It actually almost defies description. The the interview with them. It's actually quite hard to even capture how completely weird and out there it is. All I could think when I was reading it was, this is just not a good advertisement for homeschooling. Well, of course, uh, Willow talks about the year that she actually went to school, and she says that you know it was really useful because it gave me um, an insight into why all all American children are so depressed all the time. <laughs> but I was also really depressed, so I didn't yeah. go back. But she also said the interviewer, who must at this point have just been absolutely cracking a bottle of something fizzy because I mean you know really Gold. you just do not get that sort of legitimate bonkers without having a little punch of the air um, as an interviewer the interviewer like rather cautiously but optimistically asks you seem to have a really interesting sense of time and uh, Willow who's just released a sort of an album but nothing quite as formal as an album and she sort of I think she breathed into a bottle and like set it like floating down a river or something like that they don't really get into you know record companies or anything these two that's far too sort of esoteric but um she said oh yeah well the thing about time is i can make it slow down or speed up whenever i want that's how i know it doesn't exist i also loved the um there was a bit where she was she or the brother i can't remember were talking about the first single that they'd released which was called whip my hair or was, or was it whip yes, your hair whip, whip my hair i think <laughs> I can only imagine what an 11-year-old or whatever would come out with in Whip My Hair. I might have to go and have a listen to that after we finish up here. Anyway, the full write-up is on the fabulous New York Times blogs. It's, um, it, look, it's just, it really only takes about three minutes, but they are three pretty good minutes. <laughs> they are. And also we do, on our on the website, www.chat10looks3.com, uh, we do put up links to everything that we talk about, so you don't have to go schlepping around to try to find that thing. It will be on our website and you can click straight on it. On that note, I know that I'm contributing way too much kind of celebrity bonkersville, but um, there's a very funny, sh very short column by Marina Hyde, who's a great um, sort of celebrity columnist at The Guardian, about um, a terrifying incident this week where Bono's luggage fell out over, over uh, during a flight over Germany. She does a lot of... his way of carpet bombing people with his record again? No, no, well, I, I, normally he only drops luggage over um, tax havens, so... <laughs> Righto. Okay. Uh, right. Do you know we we're in, we are in Petersham after a few terrifying traffic manoeuvres. <laughs> we have now been loitering in what 
is actually going to be a bus zone quite shortly. Oh, no, 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 we're all right. Okay. But we are very near Sweet Bellum. So let's say we disembark and go and get some tarts and then well, we can report back next week maybe. In fact, uh, why don't we give people a, a little preview coming up on Chat 10 Looks 3. Two tarts with many tarts. <laughs> oh, no, I've dropped custard down the front of my dress. Hang on, isn't that the one you've got to wear to interview the Prime Minister on television in 15 minutes? This is a disaster. Quick, let me spit on it and give it a rub. Who wrote this? <laughs> That's next week on Chat 10 Looks 3.